Well, as you take a seat, let me also welcome you to Northland. Uh, it's an incredible gift for us to have you with us, whether it's your first time or maybe you've been exploring, you've just moved uh, into the area here and you're looking for a home church. Uh, thank you for coming out on a Sunday morning and being with us. If you have questions, uh, myself and others uh, will be in the foyer afterwards. Look for somebody wearing an orange lanyard. Would love to answer any questions that you might have. Also want to send a greeting out to those joining online, have uh, spoken with a number of people who have had to join remotely, um, traveling, uh, maybe sick uh, for different reasons, just thank you so much. It's, it's uh, great to be linked with you. And of course, always want to give a shout out uh, to those that are joining from our correctional facilities. Uh, you're a part of our family. Thank you for being there with us. Would you here in Longwood join me in welcoming them? So here we are, seven days after Easter. We had an amazing weekend uh, last weekend celebrating our risen Savior. Uh, thank you so much. Those of you that came also who gave, um, we, we took a special offering that whole weekend, uh, what we do traditionally here every year as a way to uh, continue to support all the ministry efforts that are taking place uh, in the church, in our local community, as well as around the world. We had an incredible, uh, very generous response thank you for doing that and continue to encourage us as a church family. Uh, make that a part of your worship. Uh, just as in the same way that we come around God's word, uh, the same way we sing those lyrics and declare those anthems uh, in worship and in music, uh, in the same way we go and serve this community, um, continue to give uh, as God leads you to for all the great efforts that are taking place uh, in and through and around this church. So here's the question I have for you. Have you ever been in a situation where you found yourself in an uncomfortable moment? Uh, maybe we can even go so far as saying kind of an embarrassing moment where you, you all of a sudden felt caught and you were asking yourself kind of in a panic, what now? All right, think about that. Have you ever been in a situation like that? It's happen it happens to me all the time, if I really am honest. Um, in fact, it happened very recently, just a few weeks ago. Um, I think it was the nine o'clock service, but I can't remember, maybe you were there. Uh, I was sitting over here. I was supposed to come up uh, after a particular song and, um, and pray. And so uh, one song was finishing up and I came up ready to, to do my prayer. Uh, all of a sudden to realize the next song just launched. Um, big song, drum big, you know, sound, and uh-oh, um, I'm not supposed to be up here right now. There was actually one more song, and I'm supposed to come after that song, but now I'm like right here in the middle. It looks like I'm about to sing a solo for everyone. Um, I mean, I look around for some help, you know, from the worship team. They're laughing at me. Um, Michelle finally comes and puts her arm around me, gives me a hug. I think Austin was playing on the drum kit. He just sort of rolls his eyes and, you know, is telling me to hide behind the drum kit for a little bit. So I do. I crawl back there. Um, but it was one of those moments where it's like, oh, what now? And maybe you found yourself in one of those situations where something happens and all of a sudden you're at that fork in the road and you're trying to figure out what now? Maybe it's something a little bit more serious than that. Uh, maybe, maybe you just got to a place where you just got married. It's a really great thing. What now? Maybe you just find yourself in a situation where one thing has led to another and you're getting a divorce. What now? Maybe you're in between jobs, students. Maybe you're about to graduate high school or college. Or forget that, sophomores, freshmen, juniors already kind of freaking out a little bit about what's next, all that pressure of trying to having, having that figured out already in your life. What now? We all go through these moments, these forks in the road, and you have to imagine that some 2,000 years ago after that first Easter, after the disciples had their big Easter egg hunt, after they had eaten all the chocolate they could possibly consume, after that big first Easter, they had to be sitting around wondering, okay, so now what? What did the disciples do? What did the early church do in those days after his resurrection? 
those months, those first hundred years? What do, what do the scriptures teach us were the activities, the focus, the function, the heartbeat of God's people during that time? That's what we're gonna be looking at. In fact, we're gonna explore this question, what happened after the resurrection? And what does the resurrection continue to do for us in our lives today as Christ followers? We're gonna look at some scriptures. Um, I'm gonna highlight a few here. Some of them are in your worship guide. You can follow along. Basically, wanna look at what is told in God's word chronicling what happened in those days following Jesus's conquering of death and resurrecting. It says in Acts chapter one, this would have been in those, those uh, moments following uh, after his resurrection. It says after his suffering, after Jesus's suffering, he presented himself to them and gave many convincing proofs that he was alive. He appeared to them over a period of 40 days and spoke about the kingdom of God. It's incredible to think what was taking place during that time. So many of us, maybe, maybe we only um, come to, around Easter to those services and we're not familiar with what exactly happened and transpired following those days and we think Jesus resurrected and poof, he just disappeared into the clouds. But we get this picture of something different that happened. 40 days Jesus taught about the kingdom of God. 40 days showed the scars gave proof of his resurrection, his life, his existence. 40 days spent instructing, preparing the early church, those followers, for what was next. And then Jesus says in verse eight of that chapter, this is Jesus' words, to them, and they are timeless for us today, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. When we look at that, and you, if you were to open up maybe in the back of your Bible and you have one of those maps and you can kind of see and you find Jerusalem and you start understanding geographically maybe what Luke was intending to say in those words, it would be easy to see it and say, okay, Jerusalem is nearby, those are my neighbors, Judea, maybe our region, Samaria, kind of a little further out to the ends of the earth, certainly that was part of the mission of the church to go and be witnesses, to take the good news of the gospel beyond just their own private space. But I want you to circle and remember that word Samaria. There's a very interesting clue here that Jesus uses in giving us some understanding of why Samaria is used and set apart. Why Samaria? We'll come back to that in a minute. But let's go to the end of Luke. These are the last few verses that Luke, the writer, captures here uh, in his gospel uh, in chronicling what Jesus did. It says that when he had led them out to the vicinity of Bethany, this would have been after the 40 days. The 40 days are done and he's done all that teaching. Now it comes to this moment. He leads them out to the vicinity of Bethany he lifted up his hands and he blessed them. And while he was blessing them, he left them and was taken up into heaven. Then they worshiped him and returned to Jerusalem with great joy. And they stayed continually at the temple, praising God. An incredible picture that answers that, what now, then what, what took place. Basically, let me give you a literary summary of, of what's happening in these scriptures. Luke, who was a physician, he was one of Jesus' 12 disciples. He was a doctor. If you ever read the different gospel writings, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, you will note that in Luke's writings, being a doctor, being more detail-oriented as a physician, he often gets into more of the granular, and he, he unpacks certain details that are a little different than how Mark did it. Mark, if you ever read Mark, it's the shortest gospel. It's rapid fire, just action, just events. It just goes from one thing to the next. John starts his gospel, uh, in the beginning was the word. Doesn't start with Jesus' birth, but starts with Jesus' ministry. Luke is actually one that captures, like Matthew, the start of Jesus' life at his birth, and Luke chronicles from birth to resurrection. That's volume one that Luke writes. But then Luke, and he's the only disciple that did this, he wrote volume two, which is the book of Acts. So Luke, in, in his gospel, chronicles what Jesus did, and then in volume two, in Acts, he's capturing the acts of the apostles, the acts of the early church, what it is that they did 
in those months and years following the activity of the body of Christ that flourished then and ultimately led to us today, still some 2,000 years later, following in their footsteps. And so what we want to do is I'm going to give you kind of a high-level look. We're going to just breeze through six scriptures, pretty rapid fire. There, those are the ones that are in your worship guide. A snapshot of these exclamation marks that Luke uses to capture the essence of what was taking place in the life of the church following Jesus' ascension back into heaven. And so these verses basically are broken up over six sections. If you ever read uh, uh, Acts, you see chapters like all the books of the Bible, but you don't see six sections. But what scholars have noted in, in studying that book is that there actually are these panels, these sections, and we know that because of these signatures, these exclamation marks that, that Luke uses. Very similar language in these sentences at the end of each section. Take a look. You're going to see words that will jump right out. You'll see a theme that keeps repeating. So the word of God spread. The number of disciples in Jerusalem increased rapidly, and a large number of priests became obedient to the faith. Priests are coming to the faith. You know something big is happening when your own priests are coming to faith. That's in Acts 6. Um, a few chapters later, then the church throughout Judea, Galilee, against Samaria, circle that word, enjoyed a time of peace and was strengthened. Living in the fear of the Lord and encouraged by the Holy Spirit, it increased in numbers. See the theme. Few chapters later, the word of God continued to spread and flourish. Another exclamation mark. The churches were strengthened in the faith and grew daily in numbers. A few chapters after that, in this way, the word of the Lord spread widely and grew in power. And finally, this is the Apostle Paul proclaimed the kingdom of God and taught about the Lord Jesus Christ with all boldness and without hindrance. A snapshot of some of what was taking place. In fact, here's a quick summary in those six sections, those six panels, spreading, increasing, strengthening, growing, adding to the number, growing in power, an incredible source and surge of activity that was taking place in the early church at that time. And we can pick up some themes, sort of the meta-narrative, these grand themes that take place in highlighting what took place in volume one, volume two. These are just a couple quick snapshots. The disciples, the followers of Jesus, begin to realize the resurrection changed everything. They began to understand in those months and years that followed things that they had not even understood when they were actually with Jesus. They were beginning to understand more clearly post-resurrection that Jesus in the resurrection launched a worldwide mission. He invites each of us into a worldwide work where we bring who we are, our story, our gifts, our contribution, our talents, our work, every part of our life to be a, a contribution and influence into the expansion of God's kingdom. That includes us today. And then we see this picture of Jesus blessing the disciples, blessing us to be a blessing to others. He was continuing in his father's tradition. If you think of the Old Testament, God blesses Abraham. Why? To be a blessing to the nations. And Jesus continues to do that even with the church before he ascends back to heaven. It's what he does for us today. So the question that we're gonna look at is, what did Jesus model? What did he model in his life in his story, in his actions, in his words, his activity, that then the church followed in his footsteps and then the church today, this place called Northland, continues to follow in today. I was unpacking this with our worship team a few weeks ago. I was just, they were wanting to know what, what was the preaching gonna be like this weekend. I started unpacking what I knew at the time. And the more we got to talking, the more they began to uh, sort of find these threads uh, in the discussion. And one of them said, you know what, I, in listening to you talk, it sounds like you're quoting a song from this Broadway production called Dear Evan Hansen. Maybe some of you saw it a couple weeks ago. It was in town, a traveling Broadway production. I don't know about you, but theater, musical theater has an incredibly powerful way 
doesn't it, to express emotion, passion, themes that sometimes are difficult to wrestle with. Uh, just in normal, everyday conversation, theater has a powerful way to do that. I love it uh, when we can pull that in. I actually invited and asked uh, Skylar and Josh if they would come and sing this song that lyrically puts us in a space of, of exploring what was it that people around that first century, what, what was it that they were thinking What was it that they were looking for? What questions were they asking? And you might think, how could we possibly know 2,000 years later? I believe you're gonna find out, even from this piece from Dear Evan Hansen, that the question that this teenager is wrestling with and asking in this particular theater piece, theatrical piece, is the questions that were being asked by the world 2,000 years ago. It's the questions that the world is asking today. Listen to what the world is saying. I've learned to slam on the brakes before I even turn the key, before I make the mistake. Before I lead with the worst of me Give them no reason to stare No slipping up if you slip away So I got nothing to share No, I got nothing to say Step out, step out of the sun If you keep getting burned Step out, step out of the sun Because you've learned Because you've learned Outside, always looking in, will I ever be more than I've always been? Cause I'm tap, tap, tapping on the glass. I'm waving through a window. I try to speak, but nobody can hear. So I wait around for an answer to appear. Well, I'm watch, watch, watching people pass. I'm waving through a window. Oh, can anybody see? Is anybody waving back at me? We start with stars in our eyes. We start believing that we belong. But every sun doesn't rise. And no one tells you where you went wrong. Step out, step out of the sun if you keep getting burned. Step out, step out of the sun Because you've learned Because you've learned On the outside Always looking in Will I ever be more than I've always been Cause I'm tap, tap, tapping on the glass Waving through a window I try to speak but nobody can hear So I wait around for an answer to appear Well, I'm watch, watch, watching people pass ever really crash or even make a sound when you're falling in a forest and there's nobody around do you ever really crash or even make a sound when you're falling in a forest and there's nobody around do you ever really crash or even make a sound when you're falling in a forest and there's nobody around do you ever really crash or even make a sound did i even make a sound did i even make a sound it's like i never made a sound On the outside, always looking in, will I ever be more than I've always been? Cause I'm tap, tap, tapping on the glass, waving through a window. I try to speak, but nobody can hear, so I wait around for an answer to appear. Well, I'm watch, watch, watching people pass.
So the world is looking, asking questions, first century, 21st century, waving, looking through a window, wondering where are the answers going to come from. Looking at the scriptures, I was thinking this week about a story. In fact, in my uh, small group on Wednesday night, not really even thinking about this in great detail, but realizing coming up to the weekend, we were looking at a story that uh, next month in June, I'll actually be preaching and unpacking in, in a greater detail. But I want to give a flyby on a story that has to do with Jesus in that volume one giving us a snapshot of what it means to be paying attention to the world, paying attention to people who are all around us asking questions, looking for answers, feeling a sense of displacement, feeling a sense of lostness, unsure about where their fit is, unsure if they could even have a contribution for today, much less something that could be for eternity, that would be an invitation to join God's great work. It's a story that takes place in John chapter four. If you have your scriptures, you can turn to there, but it's gonna be so quick. We'll, we'll dive in deeper next month. It's a story where Jesus is traveling, and on his travels, he's got the disciples with him, and they are moving north. They are heading to Galilee. And as they are on this, this, this trek to make their way to Galilee, they, they look at their Google Maps and realize they are going to have to pass through Samaria. And it's not difficult to imagine that based on what we know of Samaria, it was not a place that uh, Jewish elite religious people really wanted to spend much time. In fact, there was a lot of contempt between the Jewish people and, and the Samaritans that goes, went back 500 years at the time. Uh, scholars have noted that often when these religious elite, people like Jesus, these rabbis, these teachers, if they were traveling on I-4, let's say, and notice they're going to go through this place called Samaria. They would start looking at alternative routes, right? Like we all do. We start looking for other ways to get around the I-4 downtown disaster. Um, and so you start thinking, do I want to do the headache going right through the middle? Or I'll add 30 minutes um, in order to avoid that headache. It's actually been noted that there were, there were some of these religious types who would uh, take three days of extra travel to go around Samaria instead of having to interact with a Samaritan. And so here, Jesus is traveling. The disciples are with him. It's around noon. It says it was the sixth hour, about 12 o'clock. The disciples' stomachs are rumbling. They're hungry. They tell Jesus they're going to go check out uh, the local Shake Shack and get some food. So they head over there, and Jesus makes his way to a well. And as he approaches that well, there's not only a Samaritan who is religiously, ethnically, polarizing difference between he and her, but she's also a woman. And that would have been a very difficult, challenging interaction for Jesus to enter into. And he goes to that space and he asks for a drink and he takes from the cup that she draws water from. Think of the intimacy, the connection, the dignity in which Jesus is bringing himself into that situation. And they start talking to each other. And Jesus mentions to her that he knows, without having ever met her, because he's Jesus, he knows that she's had five husbands before and that the man she's with now, she's not married to. And she's trying to figure out, how does he know this stuff? And as they talk more and as he begins to speak life into her, she begins to realize she's not just interacting with a Jewish rabbi, she's interacting with the savior of the world. It literally says that in the scriptures. We'll talk about that next month. And so Jesus models this breaking down of barriers, this breaking down of walls to move towards people, to wave them in 
Whatever their circumstances, whatever their situation, whatever their story, their ethnicity, whatever their differences in political ideology, whatever their religious affiliation. I've been totally inspired this week uh, by watching and reading, uh, texting with Prashan, who some of you remember preached here a few weeks ago. And when he did, um, he was talking about the reconciliation work that's taking place in their country. It's a, it's a it's minority uh, of Christians, mostly Buddhists and Hindus and Muslim, and, and we prayed for their country last Sunday for the bombings that went off in three churches and, and several other uh, hotels, killing some 200 people, over 500 injured, praying for them. I don't know if you've been watching uh, perhaps on, on Instagram or, or Facebook or Twitter, but reading Sri Lanka unites their statements, things that Prashan and his team have been saying, things like move towards the Muslim community, not away from them. Move towards those that you think you should fear and, and isolate and ignore. That's what we're about as a community. That's what the gospel is about. That's what Jesus modeled in that volume one of his life and his ministry. And it's what the church paid attention to and then started practicing. And so what I want to do is I want to look at just two different words. They're going to be words that describe a category of people. But let's not imagine them as a category of people. If we're honest, these words are going to we're gonna find affection or affinity with them as well. It's not something that we're gonna talk about that happens to other people. It's actually words that describe things that have happened to us, in fact, have happened to Christ himself. Two words that describe groups of people that the church, having watched what Jesus did in the Gospels, turned around and then began to do in the first century. And it's become the character of the church over the centuries. It's the character of this church. It's who we are on mission together in engaging people to be fully alive in Jesus. I want you to look at this first word, the marginalized. What does it look like for us to move towards those that feel like they are on the outside, that they are sidelined. If you think of the word marginalized, some other descriptives, synonyms that would uh, come to mind, these are people who by definition suffer some type of injustice. There's uh, some type of inequality or exploitation that's taking place in their life. Often, like the Samaritans, they are the people that are being looked down upon. Maybe not even because of anything they've done, but something that they were born into or something that happened to them. And they become marginalized, isolated, removed. And sadly, we have to confess as Christians, our history isn't always as great as we would love to look back and think on. There are moments where we have often moved away from the people that Jesus moved towards. Last year, my daughter started high school. She was a freshman, and uh, she, she goes to Winter Springs High School, a public school around the corner here. Uh, that's, that's sort of the, the area that we live in. And she had been doing theater her whole life since she was four, singing, dancing, um, plays, anything that had to do with theater, that was her world. That is her world. It's what she loves to do, anything in the performing arts. So she'd been doing all these great things since she was four, mostly like Disney productions, right? And all these great, fun, cute, you know, um, Disney type of of stories. Came into high school and she knew it was going to be a different challenge. She said, I want to try something new. I think this will be a stretch. I want to audition for something that um, is being advertised in the theater uh, group at at Winter Springs. I said, great, go for it. Let's, let's kind of, let's walk through that. So she texts me one day and says, um, they're having auditions. I'm going to stay after school. Um, and so pick me up at five. Awesome. Pick her up at five. We are driving. She says, yeah, I was one of only two or three freshmen. And uh, I don't know that I'm going to get a part. There's just a lot of upperclassmen. Um, but no big deal. We'll look for some other opportunities. Next day, she texts me back. Hey, they put Um, a list on the door. Um, They've got my name on there for some callbacks. I'm going to go pick me up at five again. I'm going to see what happens. So I go 
and, uh, and I get a text before that saying that she got in and that she got a piece and she was excited about it. Well, that was before the afternoon rehearsal. That was kind of around lunchtime. So by the time I had read that text to the time that I was picking up her at, her up at five, they had had this, uh, not audition, but they had had some time to process as a theater group and get into some of the play. So I pick her up at five. She jumps in the truck, shuts the door, and we have barely moved from, from the parking lot. And Emerson just starts weeping, like heavy, heavy weeping. Maybe you've been around somebody like that where the weeping is so heavy, so deep, that it's not just the tears that are coming out of the eyes. She literally just started rocking back and forth in her seat, and she started to use a phrase in, in words that uh, would be inappropriate for me to repeat here in church. But the gist of what she was saying, what she kept repeating over and over is, it's not right, it's not right, it's not right. And as she's saying that, I'm praying, God help, God help, God help, because as a parent, like many of us, I'm thinking whatever she's about to say, I have no idea if I can help her with. So God, help. Holy Spirit, I invite you right here, right now. Come, I need your help. And so I begin to ask her, what's not right? And she tries to communicate. She says that they got together as a group and they began to research and read about this story that was a true story that took place just some years ago, a story in Laramie, Wyoming, the project, the the theater production was called The Laramie Project. And they began to understand, they wanted to dig in and and explore and investigate that community in Laramie and, and the time period and sort of what was happening in that city. And as they began to unpack what happened, she started to tell the story that it was a a young man, a guy named Matthew Shepard, early 20s, who had been befriended by a couple other uh, guys his age, built some trust. They took him out to a rural part of, of Laramie, beat him, tied him to a post and left him for dead because of his sexual orientation. And Emerson starts repeating again, it's not right, it's not right. And she said, Dad, when we were researching, all of a sudden on my computer, I'm just looking and clicking and finding things to understand more of what was happening. And she said, I came across these pictures of these people who were protesting outside of the hospital while this young man, Matthew, was in a coma before he died for some days. He was in a coma and there were people claiming to be Christians holding up these signs with their opinions of what they felt God had already decided about Matthew, that Matthew was in hell, that God hated Matthew. And she's weeping and she's saying, it's not right, it's not right. And by then, we've pulled into the driveway, turned the truck off, and we just begin to pray. And we're praying mostly that God would change our hearts. We just start praying, God, would you teach us again what the gospel means? Will you teach, will you change our hearts? We can't control what others think, but God, we're sure that we need to be reminded anew what your gospel means. Would you teach us what it means to love and to invite and wave people in? Looking at the scriptures It's clear that Jesus went after the marginalized constantly. He often was looking, in fact, I was just reading this morning when I woke up over some coffee time, just going back and looking through the scriptures, the way that Jesus would go after not just people like the Samaritans, but tax collectors, prostitutes, people that would otherwise have been ostracized, isolated, ignored. Jesus went from point A to where they were, point B. And that's the character of the church. And we have to ask ourselves, how are we doing with that today? The second group that I wanna look at though, the second word, besides the marginalized, is the vulnerable. 
How did the church in those first hundred years go after, seek out, invite, wave in the vulnerable, those who are searching in an in-between place, isolated? Some of us in this room might be in that space right now. I've had a number of conversations in between services from last night to this morning, people talking about family members they know, situations that they are personally in, where they are in a desperate place, an in-between place. You've probably been around, maybe you are in one of these vulnerable places. Those who are in that state, it's not that they're weak. If you've ever been around somebody that's in a vulnerable place, you actually find they have a deep, resolute strength. You wanna be more like them because there's something buried inside of them that is yearning to, to, to be made whole and complete again. They are not helpless. They're caught often in an extreme crisis. They're not fearful. In fact, they are our best teachers of what it means to be courageous. And there's many of us in this community that are going through situations like that. Again, going through the scriptures this morning, just flipping through examples of Jesus moving towards people who were physically in a vulnerable state facing leprosy, facing different diseases. Think about Thomas, somebody who was one of Jesus' 12 disciples and and experienced a crisis of faith. We know him as Doubting Thomas. Imagine having that label as one of the 12 disciples. And what does Jesus do? Instead of kicking him off the team, he moves towards him. He shows Thomas his wounds. He allows Thomas to touch him and realize who he is. He pulls him in, draws him closer. That's the picture of volume one of what Jesus was all about. It's what Jesus did. I got a text from a friend. um, I think it was around February or March saying, um, you, I don't know that you're aware of something really cool that's happening, but um, I think you need to know something that actually has to do with people that are, are from Northland that are having an impact in our community around some people, some other people that are going through an extreme type of vulnerable uh, place right now. And so this person was texting me and I, uh, they actually were an intern here at one time. I said, great, let's, um, let's meet up. We met up two days later. I got to meet with her and one of her colleagues and, and I went down and visited this house that had been purchased to be a safe house for a ministry that was just starting to emerge here in the Orlando area, an organization called Letitia's House. As many of you know, here at Northland, we have had a ministry for a number of years called One to One Hope. And uh, this has been an incredible outreach to a unique, tragic, actually, part of what makes Central Florida, some of the dynamics that are specific to things that we have to deal with here that are far different than maybe other places have to deal with. As a city, we actually have many who are, are put in situations where they are being trafficked as humans. I don't know if you've seen these statistics But some of the things that you'll realize as a nation, actually I think that's internationally, every 30 seconds another human is being trafficked. Here in Florida, we're the third largest city in our nation that receives calls for those that are being trafficked. Why? Florida's high tourism, the sports industry, the attractions. We have the second largest convention center uh, in, in the United States, all a recipe for those who look to abuse and take advantage of, those who are in a, in a unique, vulnerable situation, and this is happening right here in our community, right here in our city in Central Florida. And this person was texting me and saying, you know what's crazy is that there are Northlanders that have been a part of this. I don't think you have any idea. I said, I didn't. That's the character 
of this church following in the footsteps of Christ and the apostles from the first century to the 21st century. So I began to understand more of the story. I began to talk to Meg Johnson, one of our team leaders who who leads the efforts that take place with One to One Hope and dig in deeper to what was happening, this new partnership that was emerging with with Letitia's house. And, And the more I uncovered, the more I thought, this is a story we have to tell to this congregation, not just the ones that have been volunteering, but to everyone, what can we do more to be involved. So I talked to Marcus and Faye and our team, and I said, would you please go and and interview and put together some imagery, some stories, help us capture what's taking place. Check out this video. Elizabeth, who is the founder of Letitia's House, will begin to unpack what that's all about. There was a mom on a youth group trip as a chaperone and saw a girl on the street named Letitia. We discovered that she was not by herself, but with a pimp. But we gave her some food and water. It was hot. Third night, we saw Letitia. I called my husband, said, there's a girl on the street and I'm bringing her home. He said, that's okay. If she needs to be rescued, we'll manage. I said, you can't take a child off the street. I said, why not? But apparently that's kidnapping against state lines or something. So they said, we've got a safe house if she's willing for Christ to change her life. She grabs my hand. She says, oh God, if you're real, change my life. And as we went, she told us that she'd been trafficked when she was 12. She was in her 20s. She had hep C. She was HIV positive. She said nobody had cared if she lived or died until she'd met us. The house mother comes out and says, welcome home, Letitia, welcome home. And she hugs her. And at that moment, God said in my ear, this is what you're going to do. The irony is that I said to the Lord, I have a degree in music and I homeschool my children and I run a Girl Scout troop and do you know who you're asking to do this? My name is Elizabeth Ameling and I'm the executive director and founder of Letitia's House. We run a safe house in Virginia and we have one now in Florida. We have a lot of really good programs that are that work with trafficking victims. There's been a great outreach for that. Letitia's house is one of few houses in the United States that has long-term trauma-informed care because studies have shown that it takes an average of 18 months to four years for the impact of trauma to be dealt with adequately. And the Holy Spirit is wonderful at changing hearts, but sometimes you have to go through counseling and deal with post-traumatic stress and all these different things that have happened. If you were raped 400 times, you have to deal with those rapes. Somebody once asked me why a church would want to get involved in such a dark injustice. Well, the simple answer is that God doesn't ask us. He demands it. And One to One Hope is Northland's response to human trafficking. As local abolitionists and advocates, we provide hope through One to One discipleship. And we always keep the cross in front of us, never behind us, never beside us, but in front of us. And we want the cross to light our path. Central Florida area is actually ranked third in the country for most cases of human trafficking. It could also actually be in the high schools, it could be in your local neighborhood. It's hidden. We have an 86% success rate, and that's three years post being rescued. Because um, women have learned skills to survive, and they know who they are. Well, here at Letitia's house, you know, we get up as a schedule. We start our day by a morning meeting, followed by prayer. Um, programs and volunteers and um, different ministries that come by and learn about God and how God is just working in not only our lives, but what He's done in the past and what He's done for so many people that weren't perfect. They had so many flaws and I think that that's just something that we all need to cling on to because we don't have to be perfect at the end of the day and we still have that hope that God will love us and one day bring us home. The volunteers and the different organizations that come and help out are like so helpful physically and emotionally. They just give us, you know, a good heart to know that there are good people out there that are willing to help individuals like myself that have been through situations. And, you know, it's just comforting to know that those people exist. I've been a member of Northland since 1998 and was just kind of going along, coming to church. 
and it wasn't until 2018 that all of a sudden God just really started stirring my heart and said, Katie, I need you to serve. The One to One Hope Northland Ministry came up and as I had heard, it was kind of dark and kind of difficult to do, but I thought, you know what, God, if we bring our light in there, that's what these girls need. I come every Tuesday and I bring this wonderful little creature right here, Ember, with me and uh, we do pet therapy and she just brings so much joy to the ladies. Yeah, without Northland, Letitia's house would not exist. And without the work and the volunteers and the prayers and the love and the hours spent, hands and feet. This house was in bad shape. Holes in the ceiling, holes in the walls. It was bad. That's the hands and feet of Jesus doing something. That's getting your fingers dirty. When I walk into the house of Letitia's house, I see Northland Church everywhere. There are people in ivory towers that are vulnerable who need Jesus. And if you look at every person that you see, whether you're riding a bus, whether you're walking down the street, talking to the person in the checkout line, I mean, honestly, if you go about it as seeing as you're on God's mission and everywhere you're supposed to bring the grace and love of Jesus Christ, you constantly think about it as a mission. What would the disciples do? What would Jesus do? You miss out on a blessing if you just stay insulated and only thinking about yourself. The last thing that we need to do be as local abolitionists or advocates is sit inside the church and wait for the survivors and the victims of human trafficking to seek us out. On the contrary, we're the ones who need to go into the darkest of corners. When you say, God use me, He will. <laughs> This morning, we actually, it's a great privilege for us uh, to have Elizabeth here. Elizabeth, if you don't mind standing, just so we can acknowledge you. She flew down from Virginia. So grateful for her. So in, in looking at the scriptures, Genesis to Revelation, there is one main fact that I wanna highlight for today one that you can take to the bank. If you wanna know where Jesus is, if you would like to figure out one predictable place where Jesus always is, it's with the vulnerable and the marginalized, always. Which is good news for us, right? Because on some level, every one of us in this room has experienced some level of being marginalized, being vulnerable. In fact, what sets Christianity apart from any other religious faith is that we worship a Savior who came, was marginalized, was vulnerable. God in flesh walked on this earth absorbing pain and suffering that then allows us to know him better as he already knows us. At the same time, there are, there are some, some of us who've gone through one of these situations or know somebody who has gone through uh, an extreme form of being marginalized or being vulnerable like what we just heard about. In fact, what we wanna to do today is, and what we've been doing all weekend is inviting this congregation to another level of participation with what God is doing through this ministry with Letitia's house, sort of an extension and ongoing um, uh, work that Northland has been a part of with One to One Hope and now with this new effort. I wanna show you a couple just quick slides of some opportunities that you can get involved in with Letitia's house. Uh, on the website, if you go there, if you look at it later, uh, many examples, and I'm gonna kind of fly through these, are not intended for you to read in detail, but food items that can be donated, household items, gift cards, things that they need. You can go on there, lots of different ways for all of us to participate on some level, uh, even with, if you have a professional uh, skill that you'd like to offer, there's still some work that needs to be done in the house, uh, things that, that you could volunteer and help uh, be present, build relationship with, and, and show up 
as we heard about in the video as well. And so there's incredible ways to get involved. But what we want to do this weekend, we don't do this very often. In fact, a lot of us couldn't remember the last time we had done this before. We want to invite uh, everyone in our congregation to participate this weekend by just making some kind of contribution if you so would like to. $5, $10, $20, whatever it is, you can go to this web link. You can just uh, punch that into Google Safari, whatever you use, and it'll take you to a link. I was talking to some of the ushers uh, earlier today and they said, people are doing it, right? When you Yes, please, you can pull out your phones now and do that, even as we're gonna sing this last song. We're going to take a minute or two to stay seated as the song starts. Uh, give as the Lord leads, and we'd love to make a gift to Letitia's house and what's happening, the great work that's taking place there. This last song that we're going to be led in uh, by uh, the worship team, it's a, it's a new song. It's a, it's a lyrically um, weighty uh, song that, that highlights the story of three young men who in the Old Testament, uh, they were put into a situation where uh, they were living in a kingdom under a tyrant, a king who had, uh, was so egotistical and so power hungry uh, that he built a 90-foot golden statue that he demanded everyone in the kingdom to bow down and worship. And these three young men refused to. And it's the story of them being put into a fiery furnace as a result of disobeying the king on earth, but obeying the king of all the earth. And it talks about what happened as they, those three were put into that furnace. One more was added, and it talks about Jesus being present in that furnace with them. That's the story of our creator who walks with us. Whatever our circumstances, whatever our situation, whatever difficulties we might be going through right now, as you hear this song, as you're invited to sing, uh, the, the worship team will lead us in that. Consider those lyrics, even for us, what it means to be blessed so that we can be a blessing as we walk through this life with Christ. Let me pray for us. Father, we come to you as your children acknowledging great weakness on our part. We are frail. We are in many ways vulnerable. We are prideful. We want to resist the hope, the change that you offer, Lord, many times because we, f we feel like and think we can do this on our own. Thanks be to you, God that you are the one that shows us through those stories, the Jesus stories, what it means to have a creator to, who comes to earth to be near and who invites us and waves us in and walks alongside us. Whatever the difficulty we might be facing right here in this room and online, God, would you remind us through this song as, as a story that reflects on your faithfulness and goodness to your people. We listen, we sing, we raise our voices, Lord. We give back to you in response to the great God that you are. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.